I would go through a full 45-minute, hour-long interview just for them to turn around and say, we love the way that you are, you've got a great energy about you, you speak really well, we've got no doubt that you'll do really, really well, but you can't have a job with us because of the way you look. Welcome to Career Relaunch, the podcast dedicated to helping you reinvent your career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of changing career paths so you can do more meaningful work and truly enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have decided to step off the beaten path to reinvent their careers and do work they find more fulfilling. We talk through their unique personal stories, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned to help you understand what it takes to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest is going to share his story of relaunching his career as a tattoo artist to move into real estate, then financial services marketing. We're going to talk about managing the judgments of others and overcoming the stigma of not having a traditional career or education. Afterwards, I'll share my own thoughts on how I decide whether to take on or ignore the opinions of others. Before we get started today, as a follow-up to the fireside chat I hosted in December on career change, many of you who joined that event said that you'd be interested in hearing more about personal branding. So I wanted to let you know I'm hosting my next virtual fireside chat on February 22nd on personal branding during career transitions. We're going to talk about how to define the components of your personal brand, build a professional brand without seeming inauthentic, and how to reinforce your personal brand online and beyond. If you want to join this free virtual fireside, you can sign up at careerrelaunch.net slash 222. We've already got people registered from the US, UK, Spain, Portugal, and the United Arab Emirates. So it's also a nice way for you to connect with fellow Career Relaunch listeners around the world. Just so you know, space is limited to the first 50 people who register. Again, you can learn more and sign up at careerrelaunch.net slash 222. Okay, on to today's interview. Today, I'm speaking with Brad Stewart, who has quite the career story to share. Brad left high school to spend a decade in the tattoo industry as a tattoo artist, working at and managing various shops around Sydney. And he lived and breathed the lifestyle. We're talking gangsters, parties, drugs, you name it. He describes his late teens and early 20s as quite a wild time in his life. Then, at the age of 27, he did a complete 180. He went through two years of intensive laser tattoo removal as he pivoted into a career in real estate, which was part of his total life transformation. After five years in the property industry, Brad wanted to try and find a more meaningful career path, so he initially gained some marketing experience by taking an entry-level job at a ticket-selling company. But unfortunately, after 12 months, he was made redundant due to COVID's impact on the event industry. But eventually, he landed a job in the financial services industry, where he currently works as a marketing manager for the Retail Employees Superannuation Trust, also known as REST Super, one of Australia's largest retirement funds. Now, I was excited to talk with Brad because... Well, to be honest, in my line of work, it's not every day that I run into a professional tattoo artist, so I was mostly curious to hear all about that, but Brad's also managed to relaunch his career multiple times with no university degree or formal education in the face of a lot of judgment. So we're going to talk through what he did to overcome what others may initially consider to be a limitation and the proactive steps he took to move forward when he felt stuck in a rut. You can get all the show notes from today's episode at careerrelaunch.net slash 80. Brad spoke with me from Sydney, Australia. 
Well, good morning, Brad. Thanks for your time this morning and welcome to Career Relaunch. It is great to have you on the show. Thanks very much, Joseph. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. All right. Well, let's dive right in here. I would love to start, first of all, by understanding what you're focused on right now in your career and your life. Then we're going to go back in time and talk about your very interesting career journey from there. Absolutely. Well, at the moment, I'm from Sydney, Australia, as your, your listeners could probably tell by the accent. Married, got a lovely little family, got two beautiful chihuahuas and a cat here. I'm currently a marketing manager for a superannuation fund. And what superannuation is, just for a bit of context, it's sort of the Australian equivalent to the 401k that is over there in the States. So when a employee has a job, they get paid a salary. And on top of that salary, it's compulsory that the employer pays an extra 10% in superannuation. And that superannuation goes to a fund. And we manage that money on behalf of that particular member. Um, and we make sure that their returns and their, their retirement outcomes are the best that they can be. So they can draw down on that money in form of a pension or a lump sum when they retire. It sort of helps them in their, their older years. Okay. And you mentioned that you've just, I guess, recently gotten married. Is that right? That you guys got married right at the start of when COVID kicked off, if I remember correctly. How's that been? Like, how's married life been during COVID? <laughs> it's been really good. It's been great. So we were due to do something in, in 2020 when COVID first hit. Uh, and we decided to sort of hold that off and, and you know, just sort of see what happened because my partner's got quite a big family and, and you know, we, we would have loved to have a, a beautiful celebration as, as everyone would. But when we sort of hit the start of 2021 and, and things weren't looking like they were going to go away, we decided to basically just elope here in Sydney. So we woke up one day and decided that, hey, today's the day and away we went, just her and I, and it was beautiful. So coming up to 12 months now, so it's... Married life is bliss, Judge. Oh, good. Very good to hear. All right. Well, I know that you mentioned you're working at a superannuation fund right now. So in the space of retirement planning, that is very different from what you started doing at the very beginning of your career. So I was hoping we could go back in time and talk about the chapter from your teenage years through to your late 20s when you were a tattoo artist. And I think it's probably fair to say that that's probably not the very first thing that most kids would say they want to do when they grow up, when you ask them what they're going to do when they're going to grow up. Yeah. How did you get into that? And then we can move forward from there. Absolutely. So growing up, Joseph, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, for me, I sat in school and I went through school, didn't particularly want to be there. I, I had a lot of anxiety as I sort of hit my early teenage years thinking, you know, what am I going to do when I leave school? I have no idea. You know, people, that they grow up wanting to be policemen, they grow up wanting to be firemen, doctors, whatever the situation was. And I just, I had absolutely no idea. But I ended up hanging out with a couple of kids around the neighbourhood who, one in particular's older brother owned a tattoo shop. And that whole lifestyle of tattoos and you know big tough guys and, and and that whole scene for a impressionable 15 16 year old not really having much direction with where they wanted to go seemed quite appealing so it's something that I kind of just fell into if that makes sense 
And the more I sort of immersed myself in that lifestyle, I had a natural talent for art that I didn't really realise I had until I started in that particular role. And it just kind of, I fell into it and it just kind of snowballed from there. And this was during high school, is that right, that you left high school to pursue tattoo? Yes, I left school at year 10, at the end of year 10. So I was, it was just before I turned 17. And yeah, I I started sort of working in a a shop in a place called Parramatta, which is here in, in Sydney. It's probably the second largest city in Sydney. And I started my apprenticeship and away I went. Were you thinking that you were going to leave high school when you started high school? Were you planning on finishing? Is that something that was crossing your mind? No, I, I always wanted to leave. I, I really, school for me was just a place I had to go. I, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't a naughty kid or anything like that, but I just didn't want to be there. And I was just really disinterested in school. But again, I had the issue on the other side, whereas it was like, well, what am I actually going to do if I'm not here? You know, I sort of found a job in a, in a shop and that was an excuse for me to, to get out of there. So you get into this world of, I'm going to just call it broadly, becoming a tattoo artist. And I know you, you sent me a few articles before we spoke today about the scene in that industry. Can you just give me a glimpse into just what the scene is like in the tattoo industry and working at a tattoo shop. And part of the reason why I ask Brad is like you and I have, I guess, met virtually on camera and you can probably tell I'm, I'm a fairly clean cut guy. And I have to admit, I've never stepped foot in a tattoo parlor. What's that world like? It's different. And I, I think since I've left, things have somewhat changed and cleaned up a little bit. But the industry in Sydney is essentially run by outlaw motorcycle clubs, so biker gangs. Basically, to own a shop, you need to be in a bike club or you need to be paying someone in a bike club. And along with that comes the consequences if you don't. So I know some of the articles that I sent you across back from when I was working in the industry were, you know, tattoo shops getting shot, firebombed. You know, I think I sent you one where rammed with vehicles yeah Yeah. a a car was rammed into a front of a shop and set on fire because they wouldn't pay their standover money that they you know were told they had to pay in order to operate and that was something that was fairly common i mean something would happen like that on probably a fortnightly basis in sydney so it really was a dangerous industry to be in and it was a dangerous workplace to be in i know that there was a particular shop that I was working at in Western Sydney and, you know, once every couple of weeks, the boss would walk in and, and he'd say, you know, lock the back door, lock the front door, don't let anyone in except your customers because, you know, this or that's going on and we might get a knock on the door. So it's a very dangerous environment to be in and it was an environment where if you didn't have your wits about you and you weren't very aware of your surroundings that, at times you could have gotten in a lot of trouble. Was this something that you felt each and every day? And I guess what's behind my question is, I guess the average person who comes onto this show is not someone who works in what we consider, I guess, a dangerous industry. Did this Mm. bother you at all? Did it just seem like what was normal in your world? 
Well, when I first got into it, I was attracted to that sort of lifestyle. You know, the whole ego image that you're projecting to people, you know, I'm working in a tattoo shop, I'm hanging out with these kinds of people. It's one of those things that made me puff my chest out and, and, you know, be proud of it. There was a time when I think I was about 22, it was a couple of days before Christmas, where the boss that I was working for at the time had obviously upset somebody. And I worked in the same shop in Parramatta that I started in, and it was upstairs. So it was on a street called Church Street. So anyone in Sydney knowing Church Street, Parramatta, very, very busy restaurants everywhere. A bunch of people walked in to the shop and they smashed the entire shop up. They smashed me up with the shop. I don't remember like a whole week of my life after that. And from that point on, I got very... There was probably maybe three to six months I actually took a break from the industry after that because that was something that kind of really opened my eyes and sort of shook me up a little bit. But once I got over that, nothing really bothered me after that in in a weird way. So that happened. I took a little bit of a break and just did some odd jobs every now and, you know, just sort of here and there just to pay the bills and so on. And then, yeah, it was like, if that didn't stop me, nothing will. And I was totally fine after that. At this point, you've been in the industry for a few years and Mm -hmm. you have this happen. You decide you're going to stay in the industry. Before we talk about your transition, can you also give me a glimpse into who was your clientele? Like, could you give me a sampling of the types of people who would come into your shop to get tattoos? Oh, absolutely. So it was everybody. It was anybody from your 18-year-old guy who wanted to get tattoos to impress the girls and impress his mates, to mothers who had lost children getting, you know, small little memorial tattoos, to people in biker clubs who wanted to get a lot of tattoos as well. But it was very varied. I mean, I would tattoo policemen, doctors, a lot of people that are in the corporate environment now, um, as well as people that you wouldn't expect. I mean, I, I tattooed a love heart on a lady in her late 70s who I remember being my oldest client. She just wanted to do it. So she got a little love heart on her, her upper arm. So it was literally a varied clientele, no particular demographic. And as someone who worked in that industry for over a decade, do you feel like there's any common misconception that people have about tattoo artists or tattoo shops that you feel you could just dispel right now? Probably not tattoo shops, but tattoo artists and people with tattoos. There's obviously that stigma where if you're covered in tattoos or you've got a lot of tattoos that you're, you know, some kind of horrible criminal or some kind of really bad person or, you know, whatever the case might be. But everybody gets tattoos. And I often say, and I I said to my mother when I came home with my first really visible tattoo, I said, if this is the worst thing I ever do, you should be happy because it's a reflection on, you know, who you are. People are putting on their bodies things that mean a lot to them, that represents them. It's a way people tell their story of their life and who they are you know, through pictures on their body. So the rumour that I would dispel is that people that have tattoos are, you know, a bad, horrible people, which is just not the case. I'm one of those people who is probably somewhat judgmental with people who have tattoos. Yeah. 
I don't know why. It's like a stereotype. Well, a reason, I though. I mean, if you look at these shows and, and these shows on TV and these news Prison Break or something. Prison <laughs> Break and, you know, <laughs> but, but even like, you know, reality crime shows and, yeah, and yeah. you know, Australia's or America's most, they're always tattooed people. All the gangsters are always tattooed. And it's, <laughs> it's that stigma, but it's the normal people that also enjoy you know, looking that way and doing those kinds of things that are totally normal. It's it's a funny one because even myself now, like I often look at some people and go, oh, God, you know, I don't want to walk past you. And and then I kind of look at myself and go, hang on a minute, you know, what are you doing? And funny story, my wife actually um, ordered an Uber once and she refused to get in it because the Uber driver had a sleeve tattoo and had a tattoo on his head. And she goes, I don't want to get in the car with him because he's covered in tattoos. And I said, darling, look who you're married to. You know, it's just, <laughs> there is always that stigma there. Yeah. Yeah, it's very hard to get rid of. You're working in the tattoo industry from your teenage years through to your late 20s. Can you take me back to the moment? It sounds like it wasn't that moment you shared earlier when you got beaten up in the shops and the shop got kind of ransacked. Can you take me back to the moment when you did decide, okay, something's got to change in my career? It was a culmination of things. So I was in the industry for, you know, circa 10 years at the time. And I was looking at older people, older tattooists that had been in the industry for 20, 30, 40 years. And I was just starting to observe as I got older myself and started to mature a little bit myself how I wanted the rest of my life to pan out. And there's no better way than seeing how you're going to turn out, I don't think, than seeing the way the people around you are or have turned out. So for me, it was a decision that I literally woke up one day and made the decision that there was more to life for me. I wasn't interested in doing this anymore. I wasn't interested in being around this environment anymore. And I made the decision to change. So there there was no catalyst. It was just a build-up of probably six to 12 months of seeing this person over there seeing that person over here and just saying, I don't want this life anymore and I want more. And then what did you do next when you realized that you wanted to make a change? Well, I started to change myself. So I was, you know, always had the short mohawk haircut. Um, You know, I was always someone who never really took a great deal of pride in my appearance when I was in that industry. So I started by making some changes to myself, the way I dressed, the way I had my hair, the way I spoke, the way I interacted with customers, just to bring myself a level above what I was previously. And then the big decision for me, Joseph, was what am I going to do? By this point, I had tattoos on my hand right down to my fingertips on both hands. I had tattoos right up to my chin, all along my throat, my neck. I've got tattoos up my head. And I kind of sort of thought, well, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? I've made the decision that, you know, working in the tattoo industry isn't it, but what is. So what I did is I I started to research what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I literally sat down one afternoon and I went on Google and I Googled something along the lines of what job can you do where you don't have a qualification that pays a fair, decent salary? Bearing in mind, I have 
and still have no formal qualifications, no university degree or, or college degree or anything like that. I mean, I've got a couple of little certificates here and there that I needed as part of my career transition, but what am I going to do? And the one role, the one industry that kept popping up was real estate. And that was it. It had to be real estate. And how much did the education come up as a barrier for you, not having the high school education, not having the college degree? Was that an issue or was it not so much an issue? It's proven that it hasn't so far. I think the higher I get up in the corporate environment, I think it might become somewhat of an issue. But especially nowadays over here, a lot of it's about your output and about results and about what you can do and your ability and willing to learn. So, so far, I haven't been held back by not having any formal degrees and I'm hoping that's going to continue. Have to see how that one goes. I've had some differing feedback on that. Some people saying, you know, you will need to do something or you're only going to get to a certain level without it, but we'll just have to see. So real estate popped up as an option. And can you take me through exactly how your first opportunity panned out in real estate? I know you mentioned before that you were covered in tattoos. So I'd be interested to hear how much that played a role in your first job or attempt to get a job in the real estate industry. Yeah, absolutely. So I ended up Googling every real estate agency in Sydney and I ended up then emailing just about every real estate agent and agency in Sydney with an email that explained who I was, what my background was, how I looked, what I was hoping to achieve by changing industries. And I just sort of shot that out to everybody in the hope that somebody would come back to me and say, oh, you know, hi, we're over here, you can have a job with us. I got a lot of responses. Some responses I got pretty instantly were, you know, no, thank you. We're not looking at, you know, at, at hiring some work, you know, if you've got tattoos, this isn't the industry for you. Oh, it was because um, of your appearance that they were saying no to you. Because of the appearance. And I got interviewed on many occasions. I would probably say maybe eight to 10 agencies called me in for an interview. So here's me, you know, putting on my suit and tie and thinking, you know, I've got a real shot at this. And I would sit, go through a full 45-minute, hour-long interview just for them to turn around and say, you know, we love the way that you are. You've got a great energy about you. You speak really well. We've got no doubt that you'll do really, really well in this industry, but you can't have a job with us because of the way you look. And that happened multiple times. And luckily, I'm a bit stubborn and I know what I want and I'm a bit stubborn. So I didn't let that stop me. I just kept pushing and eventually found an agency that gave me a shot, which was really, really good. But that issue of the way I looked never went away. So my first day with this new agency Again, in Parramatta, funnily enough, I walked in the front door of the office on my first day, said hello to my boss, and he gave me a key instantly to the back door and said, when you enter or leave the office, can you do it through the back door because I don't want my clientele seeing you with all those tattoos at the front of the office. He gave me a desk at the back of the office. Yeah, my role was basically on the phone, there was no sort of face-to-face -face interaction. And, and yeah, like I said, 
I was to, to enter and leave through the back. And he often said that I was a little bit of an experiment for him just to see whether or not someone that looked like me could do any good. And I ended up doing okay, which was interesting. I, I ended up getting, you know, when I eventually did go, you know, face-to-face in front of, of real-life clients that the way I looked was actually quite refreshing to them because, you know, real estate agents, they all kind of wear the same cheap suits and drive the same flashy cars. And then here's me with tattoos on my neck and on my hands and, and you know, had a really different look than what everyone else <laughs> in our area had. So I was definitely memorable, Joseph. I'll bet. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So you're working in residential real estate at this point in time. What was the journey like for you once you got past the initial resistance to things like your appearance or maybe the lack of education or things like that? It was a great one, Joseph. And I did learn a lot about who I was as a person. I was making, you know, two and a half thousand cold calls a month by that stage. You know, I was able to then obviously get out into the open and into the public. I was knocking on, you know, between 50 to 100 doors a day, asking strangers if they wanted to sell their houses. So I learned a lot during my time as an agent about things like resilience, how a business worked. I was learning a lot about how to get people, how to influence people to do things. I was learning how to sell. I was learning how to sell myself. I was learning how to sell a product. I was really honing those skills of people management, stakeholder management, trying to, you know, making sure I was engaging at every step of the journey, presentations, developing strategies. So I was really putting in the groundwork of what would be my current role now in marketing. I didn't really have a purpose to be there, if that makes sense. I sort of fell into it because that's the only thing I felt I could do at that particular time. So I didn't really have a why as to why I wanted to be in the industry. It was just, this is all I could do. So it's something I wasn't overly passionate about, but I would go back and do it again because it's laid a outstanding foundation for me to be able to build on for the rest of my career. And what triggered you to then start to explore other sectors? I know that you eventually moved into financial services. How did that come about for you? In real estate, it's a very tough industry in terms of you're not paid a salary. You're on commission only, which means if you don't make a sale or find a listing, you don't get paid, basically. And along with that comes the cutthroat culture in a particular office where you'd be, you know, in some instances fighting with the person on the desk next to you about who's going to get the particular listing or who gets to make the sale. And if you're not in that industry for a very long time, you don't get the opportunity to really develop that clientele and develop those relationships. And if you're not in an office that really supports development and growth and you're in an office that's really focused on nothing but numbers, it gets to a point where you're not doing very well and you are sort of bound by market forces and other different things. So the market will go up, the market will go down, nobody will sell, then all of a sudden it'll roll over again and there'll be a lot of properties on the market for sale. And for me, financial security is a really important thing and I wanted to be in a role where I had a steady income and a steady salary. I also wanted to be in an industry 
and have a role that had meaning to it for me. And I started to really enjoy the more marketing and strategic side of real estate more so than the interaction with people and the sales. So for me, it took probably, again, six to 12 months to try and understand what where that lay outside. And as I mentioned before, financial security is something that's quite important to me. I always, my parents were self-employed growing up and, you know, I, I saw my dad get up and go to work every day to make sure that we, you know, we could pay for the roof over our heads and, and you know, he'd get up at dark and come home at dark. So, so sort of seeing that as I was growing up really made me feel a lot about financial security and wanting to help people be financially secure, which led me into financial services. I guess I'm listening to your story here, Brad. And first of all, it's very impressive you're able to make these moves from the tattoo industry into working in real estate and then eventually into the finance industry. Did you find anything in particular to be challenging along the way? And I guess I'm thinking in particular about just being new in a brand new industry that where you're the newcomer and you don't necessarily have the traditional kind of linear background most people might have in that industry. Was that ever a challenge or an issue for you? I'd just be curious to hear about that because it's something that comes up a lot with people who are moving into new sectors or roles or functions. Yeah, extremely challenging. There's not been a move that I've made that hasn't been challenging, especially the move... Well, there's obviously two big points, right? So the first point was moving from tattooing into real estate. And that was challenging because that was a whole, not only a career change, but that was a whole lifestyle change, right? So I cleaned up the entire way I lived my life. I changed my circle of friends. I changed the way I spoke. I changed the way I look. I changed the way I interacted with people. I changed, you know, what I did for a living, you know, probably the change into the change of jobs was probably the easiest change as opposed to the rest of my life that I had to change along with it. Moving from real estate into the marketing world was a big challenge and a challenge that I kind of still face today, even though I'm in a position where I feel like I'm supposed to be. So the marketing world, as you probably know yourself, it's very much based on experience. So I, not having that qualification, not having in real estate the formal marketing experience, even though a lot of what we did in real estate was marketing. Right. To get into financial services, I needed, as silly as it sounds, I needed at least 12 months with the word marketing in my job title. So what I had to do was go from that time in real estate where I was doing okay, I was kicking goals, I wasn't setting the world on fire, but I had a level of a reputation around the area as someone who knew what they were doing, was fairly competent, and I didn't have many issues in in that regard, to looking for an entry-level job purely because it had the word marketing in it, which would allow me to take my next step. So taking a step backwards to go forwards was really, really tough. And I had to do that twice. I had to do that moving into marketing. I went into a, an e-commerce sales-based business where we sold tickets to events and I had to move yeah, right back to the start, 
do almost a 12-month apprenticeship for it to be formalised and then sort of take that same entry-level role into the financial services industry where I could get 12 months of financial services experience before I could take a step out and get into an actual full-time proper marketing role. So that whole transition was probably the toughest point of my career so far, I think. Yeah, I can imagine. And I guess I'm just thinking that with each of these steps, it sounds like you were just patiently and persistently progressing in the direction that you wanted to go. Did you deal with any sort of imposter syndrome along the way? And if so, how did you manage that with each of these steps? Yeah, absolutely. So imposter syndrome, I mean, it's something that I even face today. I think it's something that I'll have for the foreseeable future. I think a lot of a lot of people have that. The fact that I had such a different background, the fact that I looked the way I looked, especially moving into real estate, having those naysayers who said, you know, you'll never get anywhere, you'll never do well because of the way you look, people won't want to talk to you. Things like that always play in the back of your mind. And when you're sitting, you know, in the living room of a, of a mother and a father who are looking at selling their family home, you, I often thought, are these people not going to give this to me because of the way I look? So I always felt like I didn't belong where I was. And moving into the business outside of real estate, that ticketing business, it's not that I didn't felt like I didn't belong there, but I felt like I didn't belong there, like I wasn't supposed to be there. I felt like I was supposed to be somewhere else because I knew that I was worth so much more than what I was in that particular business. Then moving into financial services, it's sort of like I took another step back and kind of felt like I'm in a real business now. This is a business that manages a lot of money, has a great responsibility that comes along with this particular role. I'm underqualified. I don't know what I'm doing and I'm going to get in a lot of mischief here because I'm going to get found out and all these all these particular things that you worry about. But at the end of the day, I just, and I've got a great support network. My wife, she's unbelievable. She really puts things into perspective for me. And she just said, you know what you're doing. You've got all the experience. Just back yourself and you'll be fine. And once I sort of realized that, you know what, that's just the, the anxieties of the change, it's probably all normal, right? I just feel like I felt it more than most. But sitting back, understanding where I was, looking at things logically instead of emotionally, I was really able to sort of just calm down and take it step by step and now things are working out well. I still feel it every now and again and I try to overcompensate, I think, with things that I do to make sure that I'm always on the front foot with things. So using, you know, a, a lot of initiative and starting new things and, and really sort of going above and beyond in a particular role just to prove a point, here I am, here's what I can do which helps me mentally, but it's, it's been tough. It's been tough at certain points. I want to wrap up, Brad, with a few of the lessons that you've learned along the way of your very interesting career journey. And I suppose the very first thing that comes to mind for me is just thinking about how radically different your world and your work was as a tattoo artist versus what you're doing now in the superannuation fund, in the marketing space. What, if anything, did you learn during your days as a tattoo artist that now shows up in your daily career or even your life right now? 
that's a tough one to answer because the craziness of that tattoo world became normal. And since I've moved on from there, I sort of, I try and block a lot of it out. But a lot of the things that I learned back then that I've been able to use now is, is how to deal with people, that whole self-awareness piece. So one minute I might have been tattooing a mother who had lost a child and was really upset and was, was getting a, a tattoo as a memorial to that particular event. And then my very next appointment after that might have been someone in a bike club who was really, really angry and, you know, just didn't have time to talk and was just a really mean, nasty person. So I really had to learn how to deal with those two sort of conflicting situations because no two people are the same and people are very funny creatures and understanding how to read people, how to analyse a situation, how to learn when, you know, I was in a dangerous situation or a dangerous position or a position where something could have gone really, really wrong and understanding how, you know, the, the mechanics of how all that works is something that I've really sort of taken on and still use at some point to this day. So, I sort of translate that into making further career moves and career steps and people you align yourself with and having a bit of a strategy as to how the rest of, you know, my career is going to pan out. So it's sort of indirect, but there are a lot of things that I draw on from back in the day of being a tattooist that have sort of somewhat followed me through, but it's a really difficult question. You mentioned strategy there, Brad. Now, if you had to give advice to your younger self, as it relates to navigating these career changes, what might that be? I think there's two things that I would tell my younger self. And the first thing is, is to be really, really careful who you listen to. Always seek feedback and advice, but be really careful what you take on board and who you take that on board from. We need to remember that people's feedback and people's advice and people's opinions are always based on their own experiences and it, it includes their own insecurities and their own biases and sometimes feedback can be really, really useful and really, really helpful and really insightful but sometimes feedback can say more about the person giving it than it can about you, the person receiving it. There's a lot of frenemies in the corporate world I've, I've come to learn. It's understanding who's on your side, who's on your team, and just being really, really careful around that. Um, the second thing that I would tell myself would be make sure every move you make is very deliberate and very purposeful. Not getting distracted with flashy lights and things that shine all the time and making sure that everything you do aligns to why you're doing what you're doing. Every career move you make aligns to your long-term goal and really block out the distractions and don't be too easily influenced. That is some really great advice there, Brad. I think that there's so many people who either, well, whether you solicit the opinions or not of those people, they mm. want to weigh in on your, <laughs> on your career mm, decisions absolutely. and your moves. And, and you're absolutely right. It's completely biased by their own experiences and their absolutely. own 
insecurities sometimes. And so it's hard to, hard to find somebody who's truly objective with this. It is. And if I listen to everybody, when I, for every, every interview I went into as a real estate agent, if I listened to all of them, I wouldn't be here today. I probably still be sitting in a tattoo shop somewhere because, you know, again, to them, they had a bias that tattooed people weren't going to amount to anything or wouldn't fit in the industry. And, and, you know, I chose not to take that on board when I very easily could have taken that on board. And if I had off, I wouldn't be here. So it's, it's just being very mindful about who you listen to. Well, okay. Last question here for you, Brad, you mentioned earlier that you learned a lot about yourself as a person through some of these moves and Clearly, you've faced a lot of naysayers along the way, and yet you persisted through it all. When you think about your own career change journey, going from tattoo artist to working in real estate to financial services, is there one thing in particular that you have learned about yourself that really stands out to you? What I've learned is I'm actually able to do anything I want to do. Going through life, I mean, there's always doubt. There's always, you're always questioning whether what you've done is the right decision. And, you know, you're always sort of thinking, you know, should I have done something different? Am I on the right path? What I've learned about myself is I have the guts to change. I'm pragmatic enough to be able to do that. And I've learned that I can literally shape my own future however I want to. And it's up to me to do that and I've got the ability to do it. So it's that whole part of believing in myself and even though there's been times where I've felt like I'm in a position or in a role where I haven't belonged, I I do belong right where I am right now and I can do anything I put my mind to. Thank you so much, Brad, for telling me more about your former life as a tattoo artist and how you made some of these radical career pivots in the face of a lot of challenge. And as you just mentioned, the importance of being selective about whose opinions you take on and the power of belief. So best of luck to you with your current role, and I hope it all continues to go well for you. Thank you very much, Joseph. It was great to have a chat with you. And I, uh, yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to come on your show. So I hope you heard some useful insights from Brad about overcoming the judgments of others, managing imposter syndrome, and entering a new industry when you haven't followed a traditional career path to get there. Now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'm going to pick up on Brad's point about being careful whose advice you listen to. Before we get to today's Mental Fuel, I wanted to thank Harmony Design for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. The Harmony Standing Desk offers a smarter, healthier way to work with its simple design that fits into any workspace. It's the standing desk I use myself, and Career Relaunch listeners can get 15% off any Harmony order by visiting careerrelaunch.net slash harmony, spelled H-A-R-M-O-N-I, and using discount code RELAUNCH. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. And for today's Mental Fuel, I wanted to pick up on something Brad mentioned about always seeking feedback and advice, but being careful whom you listen to. He mentioned that people's advice is really based on their own experiences, insecurities, and biases. And I couldn't agree more with what he said about feedback often being more about the person giving it than the person receiving it. 
So I thought I'd share some examples in my own life of people giving me good advice, others giving me bad advice, and how I decide whose opinions to take on and whose to politely ignore. So I definitely agree that feedback and advice can be incredibly useful, especially when you're trying to do something you haven't done before, whether that's related to work or something else in your life. Just to share three quick examples of perspectives that I found really helpful and astute during my own career transitions. First, going back nearly two decades, when I was a recent college grad working in Washington, D.C., after dropping out of medical school, I was really trying to decide what to do next, and I began thinking about a graduate school path as an alternative to medical school. And I remember almost word for word, like it was yesterday, a very specific conversation with Dan Mendelson, who was at the time the founder of the consulting firm I worked for called Avalier Health. And we were having a catch up in his office and I was asking him for his advice about potential graduate school options. He asked me what I would enjoy doing in the future. And I remember telling him that I would love to be up in front of an audience one day giving talks. And at the time in my early 20s, I felt like that was a pretty nice aspiration to have. But I remember him immediately pushing back a bit and very bluntly saying, that sounds very generic to me. He went on to recommend I give my aspirations a bit more thought and until I gained more clarity and specificity on the exact context for these future talks, he wouldn't recommend I make any decisions about my future or about graduate school. Now, that wasn't exactly what I wanted to hear, but I found it very useful because it forced me to think more carefully about what I wanted to do and avoid making a hasty decision. That additional thought eventually led me to choose business school over graduate school in psychology, which ended up being one of the best decisions I made for my career in my life. I later received some good advice from a guy named Yogan Patel, who was an intern at the company at the time doing his joint MD MBA degree at Duke and ended up being quite a trusted friend of mine over the years. And I remember talking with him about when to apply to business school, thinking I might put it off for a year and he was the one who encouraged me to go ahead and apply, helping me realize that an additional year of work wouldn't make a material difference to my application or even my experience during business school. So I went ahead and applied that year, but only to one school, which was my top choice school, just to kind of see what would happen. And I ended up getting in with multiple scholarships and the rest was history. Finally, just to finish up with a non-work example, I've also gotten some pretty good advice in the swimming pool of all places. As someone who spent most of my life afraid of the water, swimming has never really been my forte. And in fact, I've always been pretty bad at it. But it's good exercise. And I decided to pick it up as my sport of choice when I moved to the UK about a decade ago. And I remember a few years ago at a pool in Southampton, this random guy in his mid sixties told me that I needed to try and put my face in the water more so I could swim faster. Now, up until that point, I've been swimming with my face out of the water for years, kind of flailing around out there. And at first I kind of snapped back at him and I actually said, I'm not here to go fast. 
which is kind of a funny, immature thing to say. Then when I came around for another lap, he actually demonstrated to me with his arms and head how to do this, even though I didn't ask him to. My immediate reaction was to think, dude, I don't need your help. I didn't ask for your advice. It's none of your business how I swim. But you know what? The next day, I bought a pair of better goggles and I worked on it and then worked on it some more in the upcoming weeks. And that piece of unsolicited advice from a guy whose name I'll never know forever changed how I swim and for the better. And now I'll move over to three examples of people's advice and opinions that turned out to be totally off. And I'll go through these a bit more quickly. So when I was living in Honolulu, Hawaii, looking for my first job there after graduating from college, I remember connecting with a guy named Lowell. I won't mention his last name, although I kind of want to, but I won't. Anyway, this guy worked in finance and I was asking him about what work options existed for someone like me on the island. And I will never forget how he responded by telling me, and I quote, you will never find anything substantial to do here. And he said this in the context of me being a recent college grad with no work experience in finance and as someone who wasn't native to the islands. The first job I landed ended up being a financial internship at Northwestern Mutual Financial Network there. Example number two was another flashbulb moment when I was speaking with another woman named Myra there, who was an attorney. And I told her I was interested in doing something in radio or journalism. And I still, to this day, remember her abruptly cutting me off and saying, and again, I quote, well, how are you going to do that if you don't have any experience? And she kind of chuckled afterwards. A couple months later, I landed a news anchor gig at Hawaii Public Radio. Finally, example number three, when I started my coaching business, the coaching school I went to gave us access to business coaching calls with someone whose first name I will not mention, who told me that you don't need to have a website when you run a coaching practice. And while I do understand how someone could, in theory, run a service-based business without a website, I just felt like, at least in 2013, having one was an absolute must for any of my prospective clients to take me seriously. And to this day, I attribute at least part of the initial traction and interest I had in the early days of my coaching practice to my website that I invested a lot of time and energy into. Anyway, this all kind of begs the initial question about how I choose whose advice I listen to and whose advice I ignore. And for me over the years, I've noticed three common characteristics amongst those people who have given me helpful advice. First, I tend to listen more carefully to people whom I actually admire, to people who have something that I want a little more of in my career or life. And that may seem kind of obvious to you, but for me, it's not always easy to ignore all the incoming advice and perspectives I may be receiving from all sorts of people out there. So I try to remind myself of this when I'm getting a lot of conflicting advice so I can at least hone in on the advice that points me in a direction that feels right for me. Second, especially in the context of career change, I tend to listen to people who have slightly more unconventional 
backgrounds. And that's because when you're making a career change or when you're trying to do something a bit unconventional, people who have more conventional backgrounds are likely going to think about things in conventional ways. So for example, when I started my coaching practice, I actually made a point to stay away from coaching support groups and instead focused on connecting with people involved with entrepreneurship or portfolio careers. Finally, I tend to trust my gut. Now, I know that may not be super revelatory, but sometimes when I hear advice from someone, there's just something about it that rubs me the wrong way or just feels a bit off. And I'm not talking about hearing advice that conflicts with my own worldview. The advice doesn't necessarily need to click with me or my beliefs, but it needs to click with what I'm trying to do and it needs to make sense. And if I get the slightest hint that this person's advice, often unintentionally, is more about them than it is about me, or if I get any inkling that they don't get me or have my best interests at heart, I'll still make a mental note of their thoughts, but just not necessarily take it to heart. Overall, I find the best advice is blunt, somewhat detached, and as objective as possible. This brings me to a quote originally from Mary Schmisch in her 1997 Chicago Tribune article, later made famous in Buzz Lerman's song, Everybody's Free to Wear Sunscreen. Be careful whose advice you buy, but be patient with those who supply it. Advice is a form of nostalgia. Dispensing it is a way of fishing the past from the disposal, wiping it off, painting over the ugly parts, and recycling it for more than it's worth. So my challenge to you, if you're struggling with how to navigate your career transition, is to definitely solicit the opinions of other people you admire, and when you do, to definitely hear it, but to also make sure you're sense-checking it against your own gut and what you feel is ultimately going to make the most sense given your specific situation. This is your journey, so do what you feel is best for you. Before we wrap up today, I wanted to leave you with this message from Julia in Colorado. Hi, my name is Julia Taylor, and the career change that I made, I went from being an intelligence officer with the U.S. intelligence community to a self-taught web developer, and now I teach other women how to code and start an online business. One big lesson that I learned along the way, gosh, (laughs) it's scary as hell. It's a whole heck of a lot harder than I ever thought, but it is the most rewarding thing that I have ever done. Uh, Building my own business, working for myself, not in the sense that, oh, I work for myself. I get to travel and live anywhere and work from home and, and all the kind of fancy things you see on Instagram, but more the hard work that I put in all the time. I see a real result um, with my students, um, with my team members, and it's so rewarding and fulfilling. It's hard work. It is scary. I have lots of ups and downs, um, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, so, so that's that, that's probably the big lesson: is it's hard, it's scary, but it is so worth it uh, and so fulfilling. Thank you very much. 
Well, thank you so much, Julia, for taking the time to share your perspectives with us about what it's been like for you to make a change. And for everyone else listening, I actually managed to connect with Julia after she left this message. And we're going to be getting her on the show soon to share more details about her own unique career change journey, going from an intelligence officer to a web developer. Stay tuned for that episode in the upcoming months. If you want to share your perspectives on what impact making a career change has had on your own life, I'd love for you to leave me a message at careerrelaunch.net slash 80, where you can find highlights from my chat today with Brad and learn more about him. Again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash 80. Thanks so much for listening to Career Relaunch and a very special thanks to Brad Stewart for sharing his personal story with us today. As a reminder, for those of you who want to join my virtual fireside chat on February 22nd about personal branding during career transitions, you can learn more and register at careerrelaunch.net slash 222. This episode was mixed by Liam McKenzie. Our music was curated by Jonathan rinaldi Pohl, And the Career Relaunch theme song was written and performed by Electrocardiogram. I'm Joseph Liu, and I'll talk to you next time.